You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. This is Emily Guy Birkin. This is Mark, also known as Pastor Fi. This is Joshua Sheets, and you're listening to the What's Up Next podcast. Two. Two memories I have of childhood regarding money and religion, and both are steeped in shame. The first, I was eight years old, and every week my parents sent me to Sunday school with two quarters to give to the local charity box. It was called the Sadaka box, and the kids would bring in money and drop their coins in every week. Well, one week I decided that instead of giving the two quarters to charity, I was going to keep them for myself. So when the time came, I walked up to the teacher, shrugged my shoulders, and said that I didn't have anything that week. And then I went home, and I was playing with those quarters when my brother quickly realized, told my parents, and they forced me to take those two quarters and bring them with me the next week, and I had to tell the whole class that instead of giving to charity, I had pocketed those two quarters. The next was when I was in high school, and I loaned a friend $10, and the months passed, and my friend never paid me back. And finally, I went to him, and I said, hey, I loaned you $10. And I was hoping you could pay me back. And the friend looked at me and he said, You Jewish people, of course you want your money back. And I remember the intense shame I felt after both of these episodes. And so I really didn't connect any good feelings to religion and money. But as I entered the personal finance, financial independence community, it made me start thinking that maybe there are those in our community who connect money and religion in much more healthy much better ways. And speaking of community, before we get into the meat of the interview, I just wanted to remind about the What's Up Next Facebook group. You can find us by going to the website diversify.com backslash Facebook. That's D-I-V-E-R-S-E-F-I dot com backslash Facebook. If you like the conversations and panels we have here at the What's Up Next podcast, we continue the conversation in the Facebook group. There are postings multiple times a day, and it's a real great place for the community to come together and discuss all the important issues of the day. So, Paul Thompson. What's up next? Well, hey, Doc. It's good to see you again. Today, we are joined by three guests who are going to help us with the question, do faith and finances mix? Our guests will elucidate us with their experiences and insight on the topic, and we will begin with introductions. Uh, Mark, would you mind going first, please? Hi there, and thank you for having me. Really excited to be here. I am a pastor of a small church here in San Diego, California, and have a involvement in a small school 
and community in the Philippines as well. I live here in San Diego with my wife and four children. Absolutely have loved finding the Phi community here, and I'm very active and involved in the San Diego Choose Phi Facebook group as well. My name is Joshua Sheets. I currently host the Radical Personal Finance Podcast, where I teach people how to live a rich and meaningful life now while building a plan for financial freedom in 10 years or less. And what makes me a little bit different is I come from the background of working as a professional financial advisor. So I work really hard to give all of the professional financial planning tips and tricks to help people achieve financial freedom faster. I'm Emily Guy Birkin. I'm a financial journalist, been writing in the personal finance sphere for nine years. I'm also the author of four books of personal finance, including The Five Years Before You Retire and End Financial Stress Now. I was actually a high school English teacher before I started writing, so I come at my writing and my view of finance from an educator's perspective in trying to help make things clearer when they tend to be opaque in the financial industry. I live in Milwaukee, Wisconsin with my husband and my two sons. So Joshua, let's start with you. What did you talk about more growing up with your family, religion or finances? In my family growing up, as I think is should be the case, or at least is the case with many people, we didn't talk about religion. I don't see religion as a topic that can be specifically talked about, except in some abstract uh, philosophical conversations like perhaps we'll have today. Religion is something that is lived out. And everybody has some form of religion. And if you look at their life, you'll see that religion lived out. For us, coming from a background of Christianity, there was not a lot of talking about religion. There was a living out of it. And that was the environment in which I grew up. The most of the talking about things, especially as a Christian, would revolve primarily around talking about what does the Bible say, what did Jesus teach, and so that's lived out on a day-to-day basis, and in my household, there was never any escape from it. With regard to finance, I think the same thing occurs with regard to finance. Very rarely do parents talk about finance. Most of the time, they simply live it out, and so you see what your parents do, you see how your parents live, and then you tend to model or rebel against the way that your parents uh, do those things. Uh, We talked a lot about money. The only thing that we didn't talk about in my family growing up was kind of the technical financial planning uh, sides of things. We didn't talk a lot about 401ks, etc. But as far as day-to-day personal finance, it was both talked about and lived out. Mark, this dichotomy that Joshua is talking about, the difference between modeling behavior and didactic teaching, it's interesting that he sees both religious and finances in the same way. In other words, his family more lived it out than did didactic teaching. What about you in in your childhood as you were growing up? Did you have express conversations about religion and finance or were they much more do as I do? I was born and grew up in South Africa and did not grow up in a affluent family. We definitely had all our needs met, but there wasn't a lot of money for anything extravagant. I remember being really excited when we got a a second car growing up. That was a big deal in our family. And religion was always a very, very important aspect of our life. I would say rather than specific teachings, it was along the lines how do we apply spiritual principles of love, care, and concern for others? I had almost zero conversations around money. When money came in, it was spent. As a result of that, in my 
early adulthood, when I came to the US, I followed a very similar idea. I would earn money and I would just spend it. But I do today see things a little bit differently. I believe today that religion or spiritual principle, living along spiritual lines and finances are very much aligned in the sense that they both look to freedom on different levels. Emily, I feel like culturally, the relationship between Judaism and wealth is a little bit more complicated. Was financial savviness part of your religious script growing up? I did not have much of a Jewish education growing up for a a number of reasons. My father wasn't Jewish, uh, and then my parents divorced when I was quite young. And so I was never bat mitzvahed, did not go to religious school, and I really felt the lack of that. You know, I, I, I kind of soaked up what I could, but didn't get the explicit direction that I would have liked. And I do know that growing up, it was very clear to me that talking about money was kind of fraught because we were Jewish outside of the family because of the stereotype. It's something that I have felt odd and uncomfortable about as a financial journalist. I'm very open about the fact that I'm Jewish and it has never, not once been an issue, but I know that there are people out there who understand there's some sort of connection between Jews and wealth that is nefarious, which is obviously not true. Uh, And it makes me sometimes be a little bit hesitant about talking about money in connection with my faith, even though I think that's a very important conversation. And I do know that my attitude towards giving, um, towards tzedakah, which is, is giving back, and tikkun alam, which is healing the world, both of which are encouraged to be done through financial as well as volunteering type of gifts, comes from my faith. So it gets to be very fraught uh, and a, a very difficult conversation. And that's something that we actually, oddly enough, talked about more on with the Gentile side of my family, with my father and my grandmother, who was not Jewish, talking about what they worried about for me and my sister as we grew up, whereas it was more understated and not explicitly said on my mother's side of the family. Um, it was more like, you know, don't flash money around and, and those sorts of, of things without explicitly saying why. Joshua, these religious scripts or these stereotypes, whether truthful or not, we grow up with them. Do you remember having any explicit religious financial scripts as a child? Yeah, I think some of the most important, especially coming from the Bible broadly and the teachings of Jesus, you know, Jesus taught more about money than almost any other subject. If you go through and you do a serious Bible study and you can go from Genesis to Revelation, Old and New Testament, there's more in the Bible about money than almost any other topic. Jesus taught more about money than he taught about faith or prayer or the things that are perceived to be so-called holy and spiritual. And the teachings about money are pretty significant. And so when you grow up surrounded by that, it puts some significant clear guides. So the most famous teaching about money is where the Bible says that the love of money is the root of all evil. That's the one that many people love to argue about. It's an absolute biblical quote. The love of money is the root of all evil. Oftentimes it's misquoted to say that money is the root of all evil, but there are some significant warnings against money. And I think it does all of us well to heed those seriously. And so those scripts, those significant warnings were things that I heard and, and adopt and teach my own children. 
Uh, Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's kind of hard for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, whether we go back and talk about that in context of a specific gate in Jerusalem versus not, (laughs) or whether we talk about that as a literal sewing needle. doesn't really matter. A camel going through the eye of a needle is a tough thing. But the very next verse in the very next passage says basically that with God, all things are possible. And so there is a way to handle wealth and to do it extremely carefully. I think some of the most significant scripts have to do with faithfulness. If you break down Christian theology as it relates to money, there are a few core themes. Number one is stewardship. The basic concept that underlies all Christian theology when it comes to money is that the money is not mine, the money is not yours, the money is God's, and we are a steward of that money, just like we're the steward of all of the resources that God has entrusted to us. That stewardship relates to the earth that we live on. Uh, We're stewards of the land that we inhabit. We're stewards of the environment in which we live. We're stewards of the physical body and physical abilities and skills and talents that God has given to us to use those for his glory. We're stewards of the resources over our family, our children, and we're stewards over the money. But fundamentally, the money doesn't belong to us. That's the basic theology that undergirds all Christian understanding with regard to money. So as a steward then, it's expected that a steward be, be found faithful. And that's a direct quote from the scripture, that it's expected of a steward that a steward be found faithful. And so what that brings to, as far as the basic script that that brings to money, is I need to manage this money for the purposes of my master. And then that all leads into the obvious follow-on of, well, what are the purposes of the master? So one of the scripts, for example, that my parents lived out and taught to me is that the primary use of money is not for self-enjoyment, self-indulgence, personal hedonism. The primary use of money is to be invested into the kingdom of God. Jesus said, uh, where your money is, there your heart will go also. And it says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. I think that's Matthew 24. And so with that as a basic mindset, you see now not a physical script about money, a physical investing so that I can enjoy tangible wealth, but you have a metaphysical understanding of money that you have to take money and you have to invest it into the kingdom of God. Well, the kingdom of God is seen, it's here, it's now, it's real, but it has its ultimate fulfillment in eternity in a non-physical realm. So how do you do that? Well, the primary script is that you invest money into people. And that's a script that I watched my parents live out. That's a script that I seek to live out. My parents invested money into us, into their children. That's one area where I think you see Christian specifically, devoutly religious people from many other uh, religious traditions as well, you see that there's a deep investment into people. I'm the youngest of seven children. My parents didn't always have seven children. In fact, they had two children early in their life, and their youngest was, uh, I think, eight, nine years old, something like that. The Lord started working on my parents' heart, and they decided to have more children and to invest in children. So they had five more children. Well, having seven children is not an inexpensive financial decision. But that's a decision that my parents made. They made it gladly in faith and they invested into us as people. Over the years, I've also watched and adopted and was taught the script through action 
of investing in other people outside of our family. I tried to count it one time. I don't know the exact number, but I'm not exaggerating to say that I could at least come up with perhaps 20 or more, maybe 20 to 30 different people that my parents have taken into their home over the years. And sometimes we had a spare bedroom. A lot of times we didn't. <laughs> and the, the kids were kicked out of a bedroom temporarily to, to house some, some homeless person or some person that came off the street or somebody that was in need or an old person who needed care who didn't have family. And so watching my parents invest into people made a deep impression uh, on my life over the years. And then finally, the other area of investing in people is just simply by dedicating yourself to investing in other people and to the work of God more broadly. I've always watched my parents' ambition has always been to give away all their money before they die. And that has a real outflow. Uh, it has a real outflow. I still work with them in, in a number of things in terms of seeking to actively invest into people. Because the basic ideology is simply moth and rust can destroy any physical investment. I can lose the password to my Bitcoin wallet. My gold can be stolen out of my safe. You know, <laughs> my financial management firm can run off with all my stocks. The, uh, SIPC it may not actually return my money, but people are the safest investment. And the only thing that goes from here in this temporal life into eternity is the souls of people, the souls of the people that you have invested into and impacted. So those were the money scripts that were deeply influential on me growing up. Mark, did you experience some of that script of the prohibition against wealth? I mean, Joshua has talked a lot about how on the surface if you look at scripture and listen to people talk about religion, their almost in Christianity is a prohibition against wealth. Is that something you experienced in childhood? I didn't experience the prohibition, but definitely a matter of priority. I love what was mentioned earlier about stewardship. One of the things I see in the Choose by writing and podcasts and philosophy is much more of an tips and the tricks and the the ways to a, arrive at at phi which are wonderful I, I please don't think i'm knocking this stuff but what is not spoken about enough really is the why of phi i know it comes up from time to time but it seems to me a very small part of the venn diagram of the the bigger phi discussions and if stewardship is a fundamental reason for doing something. It's not just simply about the chase to achieve financial independence as fast as I can. There's no morality for getting to fire at 30 or 50 or 70. For me, it's a freedom from the anxiety, from the drama, from the challenges. In today's world, financial struggles and difficulties are the source of so much Anger, fear, broken relationships, it's horrifying to me that something which is just a material entity, it's something that comes in and goes out. I mean, for most of us, it's actually just numbers on a screen. It's not, I mean, money is, it's almost unreal anymore that people actually carry around physical cash. It saddens me in many ways that this very, very external materialistic thing is at the heart of either the broken relationships or the what you have, and I'm going to get it any way I can. To me, financial independence means I have a greater capacity to, to be of service and to give. So for me, financial independence, if it's just about the travel and going someplace fun and almost being lazy, I feel like that is completely pointless. It's not just to you know, get off the hamster wheel and stop working for something or someone or some entity. 
It's much more about how is this now allowing me to be of service and to take this external thing we just happen to call money and we place value in and say, how how am I now able to positively impact the lives of others with love and affection and care? Because that's the fundamental goal. Yes, I'm providing for me and my own. There is a certain degree of call it selfishness. I need to be able to provide for my own so that otherwise I become someone in need and, and requiring the services and help of others. But once I've achieved some measure of that, and today I live very much in that world, I have the capacity today to be of unbelievable service to other people, even though I don't have the six-figure income, I've got four kids, I live in the high cost of living area, but uh, just feel a real sense of passion around my why of why. What is it that, that is important to me? Why am I chasing this effort? Emily, let's jump off what Mark just said and talk a little bit about the why of financial independence. I was reading your blog and you obliquely refer to Judaism in a few places. One place you talk about the Tree of Life synagogue shooting in Pittsburgh. You mentioned that in one blog post. And you also describe yourself, among other things, as a mensch. <laughs> and I think religion and morality, especially, and stewardship all play a big role in our why of why we do what we do with personal finance. Yet, why do we only really talk about it obliquely? I feel some hesitance about talking about my Judaism in relation with my money because of the stereotypes. Some of it is also that it is more of a global viewpoint that I have. One of the things that I love about my faith is that Judaism is all about mindfulness, ultimately, even though that is not a word that is necessarily used. But Judaism gives you these habits, these rituals, and they they are repeated over and over again. For instance, I have a friend who lost her mother uh, earlier this year, and she was talking about Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, which are the two holiest days in in the year. Uh, Rosh Hashanah is the Jewish New Year, Yom Kippur is the Day of Atonement. And she was saying she didn't feel like doing the things necessary for Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur this year without her mother. And one of the things I told her is, that's okay, it will come again next year. And so it gives us this framework for consistently coming back to the same place again and trying to make better choices, trying to be better. And with that framework in place, you know what you need to do in order to be better. In between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, you ask forgiveness among people you have wronged throughout the year. And so that's something that, because that's my my kind of global view of, of the world, not just money, but also in how I'm raising my kids, in how I interact with my friends and family, in how I interact with the community, and how I try to be an anti-racist ally, and how I try to work for social justice in the world. All of that comes back to this mindfulness of wanting to, every time I come upon a similar decision, try to improve upon what I've done in the past, just as my faith has shown me how to do with the repetition of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur every year. The uh, the joyous Simchat Torah, which is when you reach the end of the Torah scroll and then you, you start over again. And it is a reminder of the seasons of our lives and the fact that things come back again and come back again and come back again and give you another chance and another chance and another chance to always improve upon where you've been. And that to me is ultimately how I want to live my life. And that comes to everything from like as little as not 
cursing when someone cuts me off in traffic when my kids are in the car to making sure that my charitable giving matches my values and that I am consistently giving enough so that it hurts a little because that is important. I've personally thought a lot about that question because for me, the transition to working in public in the way that I do with radical personal finance has been a major source of learning, experiential learning. When I was a financial advisor, I always had the chance to work with individuals. And when working with individuals, you have an opportunity to understand who it is that you're speaking to. And as a professional advisor, you simply adjust your message and your advice to the worldview of the individual to which you speak. When I came out of that world and started talking in public, I didn't know how to handle the balance between talking about things from an explicitly religious perspective. I am a Christian. This is what the Christian doctrine and principle would say to this matter versus speaking to it in a, an explicitly non-religious way. I think this is a good idea. And I think that this is something that's unique to the Western world simply due to the philosophical heritage that we inherited from the Enlightenment. If you go back and you study the Enlightenment, which ultimately birthed much of Western European civilization, which ultimately birthed the American civilization, you see this tension between what is set up to be rational thought, rational analysis, non-religious thinking, not influenced by faith, by feelings, by belief. Everything is proven out scientifically and rational with arguments of logic and scientific evidence. And that's juxtaposed against these ideas of faith and of experience and of belief which are perceived to be, in the Enlightenment tradition, less valid than the clearly scientific and objective perspective. And especially in the United States, if you go back and you look at the early religious history in the political founding of the United States, it's a mixed up lot. You had some extremely conservative, devout Christians. Uh, you know, the Puritans were fleeing religious persecution and they were a major cultural influence in the United States. But then you also had this deep enlightenment culture. Many of the early founders in the American experiment were deists, steeped in Christian tradition, steeped in orthodox Christianity, but they were personally deists. And so in the United States, you see this concept of pluralism, religious pluralism, as is clearly enshrined in the First Amendment, the basic foundational restriction on government power, that there shall not be a, a, an official church, there shall be freedom of religion, enshrined very clearly in the First Amendment. And so to this day, that culture of religious pluralism has continued on down such that especially for an American context, we always seek to be very polite with one another, very respectful with one another, but it makes it hard to talk about things that you are clearly convinced of and convicted of when you don't know who you're speaking of. And so as the U.S. American society has become more secular, this has only become stronger. And what's happened is, especially in the last 50 years or so, there's been a largely triumph of the rationalist perspective, philosophical rationalism, that if you can't defend it with numbers, if you can't defend it with clear evidence, then it's not worthy of public conversation. And especially with the intense secularization of the elite culture shapers, those who write newspapers, those who speak on television, those who lead in the public polit political sphere, etc., then it's become difficult for people who approach things primarily or first from a religious perspective to know how to talk about that publicly. I, I thought a lot about that. I've personally come become convinced that rationalism is a philosophical source of knowledge 
rational thought has value, but rationalism as a philosophy doesn't necessarily lead to truth. You can see people argue all in one way or the other, and I think that there needs to be more religious discussion, more clear, as we're even doing today, more clear identification of this is what I believe and why, and then looking to see is there evidence that we can see these concepts being borne out? Can you see what's happening in the culture? Can you see what's happening in the environment? But it's hard in American thought because in American thought, the culture itself is so dominated by Christianity, so shaped by Christian philosophy, that even you know my most avowedly secular atheist friends, their whole worldview is still shaped by Christianity. And you see that when you start to travel and you go into another culture where you also have an avowedly secular system, but you see a, philo- a different philosophical tradition. And you see that there's really very little meeting of the minds between the secular culture in the United States versus the secular culture in China, uh, because they come from radically different perspectives. And so I, I, I love pluralism. Pl- religious pluralism is fundamentally a Christian concept that I want to maintain and advance because it leads to a healthy society. But in order for religious pluralism to flourish, we have to have the ability to have open conversations with one another, which is increasingly difficult in the United States. All right. So most of us know the bad news already. If you were using Mint as a budgeting app, it has shut down. But the good news is there's something better and it's called Monarch Money. I started using Monarch Money myself about five months ago and I knew immediately that I liked it more than any other budgeting app I had ever used. For one, it focuses on collaboration. This is easy to share with your spouse, your partner, your financial advisor, and it's aspirational. Not only can you look at your current budget, but what do you want to buy? What do you want your goals to be? You can focus on those in Monarch Money. It's the next generation of personal finance apps. Monarch is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Furthermore, you can create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com earn. Again, that's monarchmoney.com E-A-R-N. What I like about this app is it's intuitive, easy to use, quick to sign on. It's collaborative, as we talked about. It's customizable. The idea is you can use this app the way you want to use it. And the reason why is the Monarch Money team is customer-focused. They are focusing on you, me, and all the other people who want to use this app to live a better financial life. After trying out Monarch Money for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com earn. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash E-A-R-N for your extended 30-day free trial. You know what? I love our meals from Factor. My son started getting them about a year ago when he needed a quick alternative to meals on the go. But where we've really enjoyed them is we've been remodeling our kitchen. That's right. We've had no access to our kitchen for the last few weeks. And some nights we just had no idea what to do for a meal. That is where Factor came in. We would just pop the meal in the microwave and two minutes later... 
We'd have a fantastic meal. You can do the exact same thing, and there's tons of variety. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including Calorie Smart, Keto, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggie. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week. These are chef-prepared meals, and let me tell you, they are delicious. No fuss, no mess. You just put it in the microwave, and two minutes later, you have a meal. This is tailored to your schedule. You can customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. Head to factormeals.com slash earn50 and use your code earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code earn50 at factormeals.com slash earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. So I want to just jump on what you said, Joshua. As a religious minority, I really appreciate you recognizing (laughs) how much Christianity is within our culture because for someone who is of that culture, who was raised Christian or even just like the secular kind of Christianity that hid Easter eggs and put up a Christmas tree, it's hard to see (laughs) that that is there unless you are coming from the outside in some way because you're a religious minority. You have gotten to one of the issues that pluralism has led to us believing that being rational is removing context. So often when we want to talk about something rationally, we'll say, well, imagine it from the other side instead of saying like, what's the full context of what this is? That is so difficult to do in part because again, if you are part of the broader context, it's hard to see. It's hard to see that, you know, we're swimming in this culture. It's normal for us. So unless you travel or you experience being in the minority at some point, you don't recognize it as being part of a culture. And then it's also because we have this sense that in order to be polite, in order to be rational, we need to strip away our differences rather than talk about them, that in some ways, I think, kind of pushes us further apart. It is difficult for me to talk about money as a Jewish woman in a, in a way that intersects my faith with finance. I feel like I would do good by having this conversation. There, there are some other Jewish folks in the personal finance sphere who we've talked about it. Like, what if we put a blog together about it? And I'm always like, ugh, the internet. <laughs> I'm just not sure I'm ready for the trolls. But without having those conversations, without being open about it, nothing is going to change. And so that's the sort of thing where I, I agree with you, like that pluralism is important, where if we, we do talk about our differences as opposed to ignoring them, that's when we can actually start to find our commonalities rather than stripping the differences away and forcing a commonality. There's a basic misunderstanding that to me is extremely important that we understand in in the modern U.S. American culture, which is about tolerance. Many people seem to have the idea that tolerance means that you agree with someone. Mm -hmm. And so in order for us to get along, in order for us to tolerate one another, we all have to believe and think the same thing. Mm -hmm. And if you look around when people say, well, why can't you just tolerate? Why can't you get along? What they mean is you have to agree with me. You have to believe exactly what I believe, which is the exact opposite of what tolerance actually means. Tolerance means I disagree with you. I don't believe what you believe. I don't think what you think, but I respect you as an individual. And I want to talk about our areas of disagreement while still valuing you and your perspective and your input. And that's tolerance. So tolerance, in order to, for tolerance to actually be seen and experienced, fundamentally means disagreement. 
I don't have to tolerate someone who believes everything the same way as I believe. I do have to tolerate somebody who believes differently, which is why we need more of these conversations with tolerance. I'm one of those people that just fundamentally believe in this overarching care of a, a divine entity that loves and cares about every single one of us, the entire creation, all our many differences and similarities. While I believe in this providence, this divine caring, there's a real sense of, well, what's my part in this? So I, I love to say, you know, trust God, but remember to eat. And at some point, you've got to align spiritual principles with everyday living. I need to be able to take the garbage out to the street. I need to do basic things living in this natural world. But for me, it's the why I'm doing that. And I know if I really have a love, care, and concern, I actually even want to get beyond the tolerance thing. To me, it's much more, let's look at our similarities. Let's look at the, the things that we do have in common and work towards those. I know I'm never going to agree with everyone. I know I'm not going to always like everyone. I don't even like some of the ideas that come up and choose five. But if I look at the fantastic similarities, and one of the things that happened for me early on was a change in my philosophy, going strictly from stocks and bonds into stepping my toe into a real estate thing. And it all happened because of a Choose Fi meetup that we had, where we had some phenomenal people coming out and actually sharing some things. And then me actually having a change of thought to say, maybe I can do this. Maybe this is a possibility for me. And then dipping my toe into the real estate rental deal. I think if I look at my faith, and I don't want to sit here and be an evangelist for my particular brand of Christianity. If I just think of my faith and say, why is it that I'm doing this? How is it that I can continue to hold to spiritual principles while living in a very external natural world? I find great enjoyment in listening to the ideas of other people that say, here's the path that I'm on. And my reaction is, how can I be of greater support to that? ever scrolling through your Facebook feed and wonder, boy, I wish I could listen to another episode of the What's Up Next podcast. Well, now you can engage our content in two different ways. One, you can go to our website, www.diversify.com. That is D-I-V-E-R-S-E-F-I.com and go to the top and just click on the podcast button. Or you can check us out on Facebook at the What's Up Next podcast Facebook group. The easiest way to get there is www.diversify.com backslash Facebook. That's D-I-V-E-R-S-E-F-I dot com backslash Facebook. We hope to see you there and engage with our community on topics very similar to the ones you'll find on the podcast. Now back to the show. So I want to get a little bit more specific here. I want to go from the thousand foot view down to earth. Joshua, I'm going to quote you back to yourself. One of my favorite things to do. You say, so the commitment I personally have that anywhere there is no need to discuss Christianity, I don't intentionally discuss Christianity. And anywhere you can't have concepts without Christianity, I don't run from a hard conversation. How do we explicitly and comfortably mix this conversation about, in your case, Christianity with finances without making people uncomfortable? Well, the only way that I know how to do something like that is to try to be open, to be clear, 
and then to allow people who are interested in that kind of conversation to think about it. One thing I deeply appreciate is when people are honest. Honesty, integrity is one of my personal highest values. And I fear that many times it's out of a desire to be popular, it's easy to hold back on what I actually think, what I actually believe. But just like in a normal relationship or friendship, you don't build a deep relationship. You don't advance together unless you're willing to start by being honest. And so what I try to do is to be explicit and clear as best I understand something, but then to also be humble and listen carefully. So let me give you a good example of what I see in terms of a place where religious ideology uh, has a great deal of influence versus not. If I'm analyzing as a financial planner whether somebody should participate in a Roth IRA or a traditional IRA, I don't see how it makes any difference if I personally am a Christian or if I'm a Jew or if I'm a Muslim. What's the difference? We're dealing with a specific tactical, technical discussion that relates to current tax policy in the United States. And we can do some math and math is the same no matter who you are. It's a universal language of God that we can understand and and learn. But it's the same no matter where you live, no matter when you live, etc. And so there's no reason for us to sit back and talk about uh, how Christianity or Islam affects this particular topic. But if we move from there to the question of taxation, we have a very different perspective. And what I talk about is that God says, thou shalt not steal. And that includes, thou shalt not steal by majority vote. And so now, all of a sudden, we have to begin a religious conversation. Because when I say that God says, thou shalt not steal, my only basis for that conversation is God's word. says, thou shalt not not steal. God's law, as revealed to Moses, written down in the Ten Commandments. Uh, And so that's a starting point that we begin with. Now, if somebody says that, well, thou shalt not steal isn't actually a moral divine command, then we've got to start somewhere else. But it gives a really good starting point when we clearly identify that thou shalt not steal is a fundamental foundation of law. Now, how does this apply to stealing as an individual versus how does this apply to stealing as a majority vote? You know, I did a little thought experiment on this. If I have 10 neighbors and six of us gang up and we say those four people over there have a whole lot of money and we six over here are kind of poor. So let's get together and go and take the money from the four over there and give it to the six of us over here. Well, have we stolen? And so now I've just opened up a huge can of worms of politics, et cetera. Well, a good starting point is to begin with religion and to begin with saying this is an explicitly religious conversation. And so Emily and I can talk about that. We both believe in the the divine imperative of the Ten Commandments. And so we can discuss these kinds of issues. And so that's an explicitly religious discussion that has to be had. To shy away from that is to pull back from some of the most important ways of reasoning and discussing things together. Emily, speak to this a little bit. Is there a litmus test for when you do explicitly bring up religion while talking about finances and when you don't? You know, I don't have as clear a litmus test as that. It's more along the lines of how close to the person that I'm discussing, how close to the topic I'm discussing I I am. There are very few things talking about money where I feel like it's absolutely imperative that I refer to my faith. That's because a lot of the things that my faith tells me are things that I think that people should do 
no matter what their faith is or lack of faith. Tikkun Olam, which is uh, healing the world, you know, a big part of that is is giving back financially and through paying taxes, things like that, is something that I don't think you need to necessarily have a faith base to be able to find commonality on that. So I don't necessarily have that kind of litmus test. For me, I end up talking about my faith when it is personal to me in a way that I think could be helpful to others. So again, I bleakly referenced my faith when talking about the Tree of Life shooting. That prompted me to start a project that I've been doing for the past year called One Good Thing. Every day, I share one good thing from that day and ask everyone, what is your one good thing today? And so for me, I was very low after the Tree of Life shooting. I felt very, very concerned about what was going to happen in this world for for myself, for my family, for my community, for our country. So my sons ended up laughing their little, little rear ends off at Monty Python, and it was such a pure good sound. And it reminded me of the goodness in this world, um, which is what I see as divinity. And so for me, sharing that every day is, again, an oblique way of sharing my faith. You know, I do often tend to be play it close to my vest for a number of reasons, tree of life being one of them. You know, I do think that it is important to sometimes bring that in and bring in the sense of where this is coming from for me, which is part of my faith and part of my worldview that is shaped by my faith. I was thinking in terms of trying to make this as practical as I can. Some of you may know that I actually find money every single day. There's not a day that goes by that I don't find find money. And I find coin, my penny, whatever it is, usually on my daily walk. And what I will often do is take someone with me particularly someone who is struggling in some areas of life and to talk about the the divine providence, the divine care of God. So for me, it's not about finding the coin. It's about showing someone that there is this providence. For me, when I find my little coin, it's a, a reminder that God's providence is over all things. Everything will be provided for, but I have to take some action. The practical side of it will come down on these walks, on these talks with folk, is if we're talking about where they are in terms of savings rate, I will bring up something from scripture that says, my favorite character of the Old Testament is Joseph, and he goes down and he has this, there's a problematic time, and there's going to be seven years of great wealth and plenty, and then seven years of misery. And in order to survive this dismal time of no food and terrible famine. They have to do something during the seven years of plenty. And Joseph ends up with a 50% savings rate, which I absolutely love. He uh, saves off 50% of the wealth to survive the seven years that are coming. I think there are ways in which spiritual teachings from various different religious works, writings, can be translated into very practical teachings that help folk in dealing with the drama that they so often experience in this natural world. Choosing fire and spirituality is really freedom towards something. It's not a freedom from something. I'm not, I want to get out of the 
the bondage of self and I want to get out of the bondage of financial debt and all those things. So there is some parallels there, but much more important than just running away from something negative. It's a freedom towards being more kind, more generous, more helpful towards other people. I love that story that you find money every day. There's sometimes like little reminders in the world to do or be something. You mentioned this earlier, and I wanted to kind of jump on this because I feel like there's this parallel. The weird thing about money is that it doesn't really exist. It's kind of this collective delusion we all share. I mean, you can't build a house out of it. You can't wear it. You can't eat it. It doesn't occur in nature. It's this something that we have created for our society to be able to function. Because of that, we put our own judgments, our own morality, our own philosophy, our own hangups on it. For me, a lot of what I try to do is to try to remove my own hangups and like make sure that the morality I put on money and the philosophy I put on money is something that will put good into the world. So one of the interesting aspects of Judaism is that you don't have to believe in God to be a good Jew. Like that's not a requirement. I go back and forth between a belief in divinity and not. And what brings me to it always, the times that I feel close to some sort of divinity, there are two things. When imagining the space and the universe. Uh, I have a kid who's obsessed with space and like reading about it with him. I just, my mind is blown and I just realize how small I am and it's incredible. The other thing is other people, is realizing the spark of divinity in all the people around me. And so kind of putting those two things together in this sense that like money doesn't really exist and all we do is kind of put our own thoughts and morality on it. And then the idea that divinity is within all of us. And so that we have this way of using this money that doesn't really exist to help each other and and be good to each other. My father really believed in the power of kindness. That was something he instilled in me. And so being kind to one another and the relationship between that and money is something that I would like to remember every day. And I'm going to start looking to see if I see pennies and things like that to help remind me every day that that is something that I want to do. I love the idea of being kind. I think that is absolutely essential. I was thinking about something that I can only refer to as the it. You know when you have the it in your relationship. You know when you have the it in your community or the people that you're associated with. It's a nebulous, undefined something that says... I can walk into a church community or a group of people, and I can know that the it is there. If you're thinking about it in terms of love or affection, care or kindness, you know that when it's in a relationship and you know when it's not. And it's very, very hard to pin down. I have tried very hard in my ministry not to focus hugely on money. In fact, if you come to my church, you're going to battle to find where our offertory is. I mean, some people will come up afterwards and say, well, you know, I didn't see anything. What do I do? My goal is not to focus on the money. I think it's the wrong focus and it's the wrong message. In ancient times, when tithing was first introduced, the church was the state. So when you were making that tithe, when you were making your contribution to the church, you were also at the same time paying your state taxes. And most Americans pay more than 10%. Even that idea of you have to tithe, and some I know that there's some entities out there that will require the, the individual members to actually submit a W-2 to make sure that they're actually tithing. So I would say if there's something very valuable going on in my community, if our church is sustaining the spiritual needs of, of our individual congregation members, then the funds will follow. And I am one of those people that just 
time and time again say, if I present the use or the, the need, then the funds, the resources will follow that. If it's not, A, I haven't done a good enough job explaining what the need and the use is, or two, the decision is that's not where we want the funds to go. Joshua, what Mark says reminds me of something you wrote recently on Facebook about being religious and yet having these big ideas and plans. And speaking about personal finance specifically, you wrote on a Facebook post, I find it really tough to simultaneously be a disciple of Jesus who values modesty and personal humility while simultaneously being a marketer of big ideas who establishes the appropriate level of credibility with his prospects and clients. Talk a little bit about the frustration that led to that post. Yeah, there's certainly a lot of disconnects, that things that are challenging. That particular post was when I was thinking about marketing. And if you look at marketing and you study how effective marketing is done, one of the tools that many marketers used is to establish their credibility. One of the ways of establishing credibility is by talking about the things that you do, talking about the things that you have done effectively. But one of the challenges is there's a Christian ideal of humility and modesty. And especially when it comes to money, there is an important uh, ideal of, of modesty. I don't ever want to be the flashiest guy out there. I don't want to be the biggest spender out there. And so what's interesting to me is the challenge of saying, how do I connect people with the real value of money without necessarily attracting them with the flashiness of the things that seem so attractive, driving the fanciest car, talking about all of the money that I save, et cetera. And there's a challenge there of figuring out how to do that uh, effectively. When you are constrained by a clear, defined religious worldview, as I am, have to confront the areas where that clear, defined religious worldview counteracts the predominant culture. And that's, that's always where it is. Now, one of the areas I think that Judaism is probably the best example, especially Orthodox conservative Judaism, because when you look at many of the practices of Orthodox Jews, there is a clear distinction between what it means to be a part of the Jewish culture and what it be, means to be a part of the Gentile culture. Well, that's harder for Christians because in the United States especially, because the culture has always been so, so thoroughly saturated with Christianity, it's always been fairly easy for Christians to be right at home. It's always been fairly easy when the popular culture was constrained by the Christian worldview, was led by Christian leaders. There wasn't a big disconnect. It wasn't hard to be a public Christian in many decades past. As the U.S. American culture has secularized, though, it has been challenging. And I think that one of the big trends that Christians in the United States are going to face is they're going to face the challenge of saying, what does it mean to be part of a different culture that's not necessarily the mainstream culture? And there are some important lessons that need to be learned from other cultures. I think it's important to wrestle through those issues, wrestle through those particular things. And to do it with integrity means to understand why you're going to do something and then to be clear about it. I'm never going to go and say, look at me and you should follow me because I drive the fanciest car. Part of that's because I'm a financial advisor and I know that most of the financial advisors who used to drive the fanciest, fanciest cars were broke. Uh, I've been there. I've seen their money. <laughs> it's, uh, I, you know, I know the lie that, that, that there is to that. 
But I do want to be a good ambassador for the ideas that I have. And I want to show the success of my clients, my listeners, and show the results. But that has to be done in a way that does not violate the standards of modesty that I do think are important. I want to make one comment on the previous thread, though. There's no need for any of us to necessarily say, I have to adopt everything that another person believes in order to gain value from one specific ideal. Good example, I would say, is that if you go back and you study the history of mathematics, Islamic mathematics scholars were the best in the world in a certain time. And then the Islamic culture of that day declined, and then Christian mathematicians became the leaders in the world. Well, it would be really foolish for me to say, well, I'm just not going to get involved in this area of mathematics because it was developed by an Islamic scholar. That's dumb. There's no reason to be prejudiced and say, well, this particular perspective, because this particular perspective doesn't come from my religious tradition, I can't appreciate it. There's no reason to apply that more broadly. All truth is God's truth, no matter how it's revealed in the world, no matter where it comes from. God is a unified being and all truth belongs to him. So when we come over to money, just because I, if I say, for example, I have many friends who are, they don't identify, they identify as religious nuns, no particular religion, or they identify as hardcore atheists, but they see the value of generosity. I don't have to try to say, you have to be a Christian to value generosity. I say, give, give till it hurts because it'll benefit you. You don't have to believe in a certain religious tradition in order to gain some of the benefits of that tradition. A good example, marriage is a clear religious tradition. Every religion has clear teachings on marriage, but you don't have to be a Christian to benefit from what marriage can bring to your life. So when we come to finance, you can benefit and say, that makes sense to me, which is why I don't exclusively make religious arguments. I make rational arguments. I I look to evidence. I, I try to give reasons for certain things beyond just, well, God said it and it must be true. But there are a couple of areas in which you do have to look at religious philosophy. One big and challenging area has to do with what it means to live in community, what it means to live with other people. And you see this as you study political trends. When a people lacks a common basis of belief, as you see a transition happening in the United States, it has major political ramifications which affect and address your money. I like the quote by John Adams when he said, the moment the idea is admitted into society that property is not as sacred as the law of God and that there is not a force of law and public justice to protect it, anarchy and tyranny commence. If thou shalt not covet, and thou shalt not steal, are not commandments of heaven. They must be made inviolable precepts in every society before it can be civilized or made free. So when you go back and you study political tension in the United States right now, which has a deep impact on your finances and my finances, what you see is that at the foundation, there's a difference in religious philosophy, which is the undergirding of political philosophy. And so as you have a changing religious makeup of the country, you see that reflected in political turmoil, political strife, etc. So in terms of national or local, even local politics, religious influence is going to make a big, big difference. The other big area is just in terms of personal philosophy. This next week on Radical Personal Finance, I'm going to be releasing a show on privilege with one of the most important words talked about in today's world, privilege, white privilege, male privilege, this whole concept of privilege. And one of the things I I find really remarkable is as especially as I watch people in the financial independence, the FIRE community, many people have this concept where they feel guilty 
for the money that they have saved. They feel guilty. They feel, and I read their comments and they say, well, you know, I've saved all this money and I'm going to go travel the world, but I know that it's just because of my privilege and I don't really know what to do with that. And so those kinds of personal philosophies, if you feel guilty about your privilege and you don't know what to do with that, then it can lead to financial ruin. It can lead to financial disaster. Well, I shouldn't make more money because I'm privileged or I shouldn't have this much money because I'm privileged. And so there has to be a clear solution to that that applies to somebody's personal philosophy. Because if you're going to go from $0 of savings to $100,000 of savings, you've just moved into the top 2% of the world population. And now if you move in and become a millionaire, as people who are fire aspirants will generally become, you've just moved into the top 0.1%. I don't know the exact numbers, but you get my drift. And so when you start traveling and you start working among people who are living on a dollar a day, if you don't have a personal philosophy that is going to cause you to understand what that's like, and if you go around feeling guilty about the money that you have saved all the time, then you're going to put yourself in a situation where you'll find some way to get rid of all the money. And so things like that, that are intensely personal, have to be influenced by a philosophy and a religious ideology. And that's why these conversations are so important. I just wanted to comment on the first part of what you were talking about, about the uh, difficulty of being a religious person in a secular world. I definitely understand that tension with marketing and, and things like that. I, when I was in high school, I was very into the band U2. And I remember reading that Bono and The Edge also, might have been all four of them, early in the 80s had this huge crisis because how could they be rock stars and devout Christians at the same time. Obviously figured out a way to make it work. That stuck with me, that tension stuck with me, in part because I don't necessarily feel that same sort of tension because as a Jewish person living in a predominantly Christian country, that tension is constant in that I turn it on and turn it off. I'm a Jew at home and a mensch on the street. (laughs) Um, I very much practice Judaism privately in a lot of ways instead of publicly. But it does create this this very strange situation where you're trying to navigate the world based on your faith in a world that is not necessarily friendly to that faith. And that is like one of the things that I find most interesting and most meaningful about discussions of faith. I mean, I find all faith meaningful. When people tell me about their faith, it always brings tears to my eyes because I so love hearing about how people interact with divinity in their own lives and figuring out a way to protect that spark of divinity while living in a secular world, while living in a world that is not always friendly, not necessarily even just because, you know, there there are values that our culture has that aren't necessarily friendly to our religious values, which is true, but also just because of the grind of living. We need to protect that spark of divinity from going broke, from the, the difficulties of having too much month left at the end of your money and uh, those kinds of things. That is very much the struggle of a lifetime. It's consistently trying to protect that faith, protect that spark, live according to it while navigating a life that does not necessarily protect it. The show The Good Place is one that I really love because it talks very much about that, about how living in the world is so complex and so difficult to maintain your personal philosophy, your goodness, and how that daily struggle of always trying to be better than you were the day before is where the meaning lies. And that's just something I find very, very interesting and I think is particularly tough when you're working in an industry like finance. Yeah, so that's a 
perfect ending note to close out this conversation of the context of this question is do faith and finances mix? So I'd like to give each of you a chance to give our audience kind of your last thoughts on that. My thought was money is just a thing and the lack of it can lead to all kinds of problems and drama and stress. There are wonderful tips, tricks, and things out there that can help people to overcome that absolute deprivation. For me, money, it just leads to a freedom to be able to be of greater service, help, and care to other people. Just like I would use a fork, I use money to do a thing. And if that thing is leading to the benefit and the blessings and the, and the well-being of others, then I know I'm living a life worthwhile. If God wants me to do the right thing, and I have this providential idea, how am I aligning my daily actions with that ideal? I do think that faith and finance mix, no matter what your faith is, or even if you are without faith, in that making sure that you make mindful decisions with your money is one of the highest order things that you can do to make sure that you are living according to your your personal philosophy, your religious philosophy. And so faith and finance definitely mix when you are intentional about it. When you are not intentional, when you allow circumstances to make decisions for you, when you react instead of are proactive, that can be when, uh, and when you are not paying attention to context, that can be when money is simply a tool that is being misused. But when you are intentional and kind and loving in your decisions about money, I think that that can be a very faithful act. As I see it, not only do they mix, but that faith, and I don't love the use of that word in this context, but simply I'll use the words religious ideology or religious philosophy, because all people have some form of religious philosophy, even those who say, I don't have faith. And in Christianity, we use the term faith in a different way than it's broadly used. So let's just clarify that religious ideology or religious philosophy and finances are inextricably linked. All people are inherently religious in some way. You can find, if you doubt that, go and take somebody who says, I'm the most non-religious person, and then find something they believe passionately and say, well, why do you believe that passionately? And all people have a built-in moral code, an ethical way of looking at the world, or a philosophy that they believe is useful. And that is, broadly speaking, a religious philosophy. And that religious philosophy will largely drive them. It will drive them in terms of how they live now, living for the temporal versus living for the eternal. It will drive them in how they earn their money. Almost anybody will have some kind of way of earning where they say, this is an ethical way of earning or this is an unethical way of earning. Most people would agree that it's unethical for you to make your fortune by raping and pillaging and destroying other communities. And yet throughout history, many people have made their fortune by raping and pillaging and destroying other communities. And so these are ethical judgments that are fundamentally inextricably linked to your religious philosophy. And so if you understand your personal religious philosophy, if you understand what the tenets of that philosophy are, then you can make better decisions. And at the end of the day, the world is becoming significantly more 
religiously motivated, not less. And that's hard for Americans to understand because in the American culture and in the Western European culture, there's becoming less religious or at least less vocal religious influence. There's becoming a a more secular culture. But I, I spend almost no time in the United States these days. And one of the things that you see when you travel is that religion is increasing dramatically. And the two religions that are the biggest influence and the biggest increase right now are Christianity and Islam. And all of the growth in the world, all of the growth in the number of people and the growth in religion are largely in Christianity and Islam. And so the next couple of decades are going to be profoundly shaped by religious ideology. Now, I'm encouraged by that because I believe that religious ideology will also have tremendous profound influences on personal wealth and on people's ability to live well. All over the world, millions and millions of people are being brought out of poverty. And it's hard to say, here's the one reason why these people are being brought out of poverty, because there are many. But one of many reasons is due to increasing religiosity. And you see this, go to travel to Latin America, travel to Africa. You can see this and study how it's happening in Islamic places and also in heavily Christian places. But religion provides a foundation, especially I would advocate Christian religion, provides a foundation for personal renewal that leads to a higher standard of personal living. If you go and you study what's happening in South America and you look at the Pentecostal communities, which is the fastest growing variant of Christianity in South America, you see that one of the biggest reasons for this growth is due to the personal renewal. Men stop being alcoholics. They stop cheating on their wives. They start going and loving their families. People have children and they invest in those children. Then you see that that leads to community. And so communities come together, especially communities that have been abandoned by government, that have been abandoned by the wealthy people in the West. They come together and they start working together. I've been doing a lot of relief work in Venezuela recently. And I could tell stories for hours of the things that are happening, but it's primarily happening through religious communities. And the neat thing about it is that in times of prosperity and in times of success, as you see in the United States, people often walk away from religious ideology, walk away from religious belief. But when crisis comes, you see that the core, the difference between intense, devout religious communities versus not. And you see, you know, some of the churches that I've worked with in Venezuela, they've got the respect of everybody feeding thousands of people and the government soldiers leave them alone and the militia leaves them alone and the criminals leave them alone because of the work that they're doing. And yet they're bound together based upon religious community. And then finally, with systems of ethics, systems of ethics are intense religious. There are a few scholars who will advance atheistic systems of ethics, but at the end of the day, without a coherent shared system of ethics, it's hard for societies to hold together. Now, I think most people don't see the impact, but if you're interested in philosophy, step back and you'll, you'll look at it and you'll see that religion and finances are inextricably linked. Doesn't mean we have to bring in God when it comes to the Roth IRA and the traditional IRA, but on almost every other subject, if we understand the religious precepts that we bring to the table, we'll make better decisions and have a better conversation together. Okay, Joshua, go right back to you. Uh, let us know where we can find you and what is up next in your life. 
Radical Personal Finance Podcast is the best way to find me. You can find that show everywhere that podcasts are listened to. And in early 2020, I'll be launching a new course called 10 Years to Financial Freedom, where I lay out the architecture of how to achieve financial freedom in 10 years or less. And we don't just go with the same simple concepts of, you know, say 70% of your income, although that's entirely valid, but we cover all the different ways that that can be accomplished. So look out for that in early 2020. All right. Thank you, Emily. Well, same to you. Where can we find you and what is up next for you in your life? So you can find me uh, on my website at emilyguyberkin.com. You can also find all four of my books, The Five Years Before You Retire and Financial Stress Now, Making Social Security Work for You and Choose Your Retirement, everywhere books are sold uh, and Amazon. And as for what's coming up next, I am working on a couple of books. I'm doing an update of The Five Years Before You Retire, and I am working on A Funny Guide to Money with Joe Salcihai of Stacking Benjamins. Wonderful. Thanks for joining us. Mark, uh, where can we find you and what is up next for you in your life? You can find me at pastify.com and at San Diego New Church here in San Diego and on Facebook. This has been the What's Up Next podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, and my co-host, Paul Thompson, we wanted to thank Mark Perry, Emily Guy Birkin, and Joshua Sheets. That's a wrap. Before we get to the bloopers reel, I just wanted to take a moment to thank a few of our community members who have pitched in and helped along with the podcast. First and foremost, I wanted to thank Dave from Accidental Fire. He's the one who originally did the What's Up Next podcast logo. And then there's Dylan Rhodes from Dollar Revolution. He's helped us modify that logo. And last but not least, Brian Ufinger, who acts as the moderator of the What's Up Next podcast Facebook group. As always, this is a community production, and I appreciate all the help from community members who make this podcast as good as it possibly can be. I had like 20-something questions prepared. <laughs> I, got, I got to maybe five of them, maybe 10 of them. I don't know how you would expect otherwise when you get a bunch of professional, a professional (laughs) podcaster, people who talk for a living for hours by themselves and you get three of us together in a room. I was about to say, and you know, when I listen, Joshua, to your podcast, I'm like, how many takes and how long did it take him to record that? And now after hearing you on this, I realize that you probably do it at one take. You probably turn the mic on and just go, don't you? I do. I've never edited a show. I just turn the mic on and start and go. Yeah, that's that's flipping amazing. I hope you realize how amazing that is because uh, well, your your shows are so coherent and well organized that the fact that you can do that for an hour, an hour and a half, is amazing. Jason Steele and I have talked about uh, putting together a, a Jewish finance blog, and like we've both been like, it would be so much fun. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, if you ever need to know how to disappear online or in real life, call me. I'll help you. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, Doc and I may just step back and have uh, you and Joshua and Emily duke it out. <laughs> It'll be the, yeah. the easiest podcast we ever recorded. We won't have to say anything. She she has the the zoom the the, the first uh, the zoom moment face. zoom face. <laughs> they call it resting zoom face. It's that kind of. Confused, like, and then you're looking at all you're like, I hear you, Emily. We know you're there. We see your smile. My biggest hack in my fire journey was I moved here 17 years ago, and I negotiated 
housing as part of my pay package, and I haven't paid rental mortgage in 17 go. years. <laughs> there wow. you go. He just stabbed us in the back right then. You just, <laughs> just killed us. It's the pastor house hack. <laughs> pastor hack. Yes. Very nice. <laughs> the pastor hack. I'm going to remember that. <laughs> That's going to find its way somehow into a blog post or something. It has to. Yeah, Emily, you didn't know this is actually a house hacking episode. <laughs> we we changed midstream. That's what we're actually going to. That's Anyone else? Anyone need to go to the bathroom? Water? We're good? <laughs> Tech moves fast, so keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. New episodes drop every weekday, so listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts.